0: Well, it's good to see everyone today. Like I said, it's a gorgeous Memorial Day weekend and it's a delight to be with you and worship the Lord on the Lord's Day as we continue in our series through the Book of Revelation. The other day I came across a fascinating article that focused on the centerpiece of Charles's coronation as king. It was a fascinating, very interesting article that focused on the centerpiece of Prince Charles' coronation to King just a few weeks ago. I wonder if you know what the centerpiece, I'm not sure that even my Anglophile wife knows what the centerpiece of Charles' coronation day was. Okay, it was none other than what's called the coronation chair. It's one of the most famous and historic pieces of furniture in the entire world. The coronation chair is a throne. It's a throne that's been in service continually for almost every coronation for over 700 years. Originally commissioned, made at the request of Edward I in about 1300 AD, this throne stands almost seven feet tall, it's made of Baltic wood, and it was back in the day magnificently painted with gilt gold all over it. It would have looked like a a gold throne back in 1300. It was painted with patterns of birds and foliage and animals, just glorious. But there's another interesting fact about this throne that I'm not sure you're aware of. The throne was constructed for a very specific purpose by Edward I. He's also known as Longshanks. If you've ever seen Braveheart, the king that everybody hates, okay, that's Edward I. So Edward I wanted a symbol of England's power and dominion and authority and so Edward the went up and took from Scotland what is known as the stone of scone raise your hand if you've ever heard of the stone of scone not sure I believe all of you but it's fascinating the stone of scone was the symbol of Scottish sovereignty It's a a slab of stone, roughly in the shape of a suitcase, about that size, and it had been used for Scottish coronations from about 800 AD to 1296 AD, continuously for Scottish coronations. So when Edward I wanted to make a statement that he was the king, he was the king of kings, he went up there, conquered Scotland, Took the stone, brought it back, and so if you see these chairs, like you see your your, your congregational chairs there, um, in the back of it or in the bottom, you know you put the Bible, and you put the hymnal. There's like a little slot there. Well, on these front chairs, there's a slot in the front. So if you were sitting in the front as an usher, there'd be a slot under your chair. They built a slot to put the stone of Schoon. In there so that the royal king in England would be sitting showing sovereignty and dominion over Scotland as it were and every year now it is brought and it is slid in that slot so the king can demonstrate his power and authority I think that's pretty interesting I think that's fascinating it is a symbol of power in the Western world you know, also something interesting on that, if you look at a close-up, when Charles is on the throne, on the back of the chair, like right around here, you'll see graffiti that is carved into it. When in the 1800s, the Westminster schoolboys somehow got in there and, and put their initials on it. There was one inscription that I found particularly troublesome and, and relevant to our group. On July 5th and 6th of 1800, there is the inscription that P. Abbott slept here. Pamela, did you get in Michael J. Fox's DeLorean? Before she was Pamela Cleland, she was Pamela Abbott. It said P. Abbott slept here July 4th and 5th, 1800. I think that's proof maybe the DeLorean works. I'm not sure what was happening there, Pamela. Very interesting. Well, as splendid as that chair is, it, it truly is one of the most valuable pieces of furniture, symbols of power in the world. That throne does not hold a candle. That throne cannot pair, compare to the royal throne demonstrated in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. It is the greatest throne in the universe. Let's stand and read God's word together. This morning we'll be looking at Revelation chapter 4 verses 1 through 11 remember beloved these are these are the very written words of God written for you and written for me the Apostle John he writes after this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said come up here I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was as it were a sea of glass like crystal in your mind's eye you should be imagining this imagining this window into heaven this royal throne room this throne and what's before and around it and around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Okay, let's go back up to the top and try to remember a little context. Remember the book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John, the beloved disciple, the disciple that Jesus loved in around 95 AD while he was on a Roman penal colony in the island of Patmos off modern-day Turkey. And this was the last letter, the last book of the Bible that the Lord would commit to to the church. These were the last words, as it were, from the Lord to his people. And in this book, John gets a series of visions or revelations about how the Lord is going to care for his people throughout the ages to come. In chapters 2 and 3, we heard about the seven churches that the Lord was committing this letter to. Through giving these visions to John, real churches in Asia Minor that would be modern day Turkey, real letters, evaluating, commending, critiquing, speaking to these churches and their plight in 95 AD. That's when the emperor Domitian was persecuting the church to a significant degree. And so we looked at that. We looked at four churches of the seven and evaluated how the Lord spoke to them and how that applies to us. The difficulties, like, so some churches were critiqued. Churches were critiqued about losing their first love. Churches were critiqued for being lukewarm. Other churches were commended for their works and their perseverance despite persecution and poverty, okay? So the context of this throne room picture, which arguably is the most magnificent two chapters of the entire Bible, the context of four and five are chapters two and three. Those seven churches represent the church of every age, their struggles, their hopes, their dreams, their concerns, And so whether the issue was from the outside or the issue was coming from within, there's one answer. At the end of the day, for all of our struggles, all of our concerns and worries, fears, there's one answer. And the answer lay outside of us. The answer is to look to the one on the throne, to recognize and remember who's sovereign, who's in control, who cares for your life, who cares for mine, who is with you, who will never leave you, never forsake you, with you to the end, orchestrating all the affairs of our world. We look up. We don't look within. We look here. This is where all the attention of the book of Revelation is on. Look with me at verse 1, chapter 4. After this, John writes, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. He gets this vision, this view into the throne room. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, meaning with volume and with royal significance, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And who was the one that John turned to? and heard speaking to him. Do you remember who that was? That's the Lord Jesus. That's the Son of Man described in Revelation chapter 1. Let me just read that to you briefly so you can imagine in your mind's eye who was opening the door into heaven and showing John this vision. John says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and I saw one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. He's described not only as the Son of Man, but like the Ancient of Days. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, which implies strength and power. Refined in a furnace, his voice was like the roar of many Waters, there was power, majesty coming from his mouth. That's who John sees. Revelation 4, verse 1. I looked, and behold, a door standing open, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me said, Come up here. I will show you what must take place after this. This is the very throne room of heaven. Look at verse 2. Imagine this in your mind's eye. We're intended to imagine this. This is highly symbolical, lots of imagery, awe-inspiring. He said, I was in the Spirit. This is a vision. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And so what we have here is symbolical language of these precious gems. We're not exactly sure what these gems are, but there are precious gems that are translucent, probably colors of red and green, perhaps blue, and they're gorgeous. And notice in this section that the one seated on the throne, how is he described? What were the features features of his body like? What does it say? It doesn't describe the one seated on the throne other than by simile or analogy with these precious gems because how could you ever describe how could you ever describe or picture Yahweh God Almighty? The one who introduced himself is I am who I am. That is who is sitting on this throne and he's so powerful, so majestic, that words can't describe him. Look at what's around the throne. I want you to imagine in your mind's eye. Imagine a throne in the middle of a vast expanse and around the throne are concentric circles around the throne. The farthest away you see this appearance, second half of three, around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. What would that rainbow symbolize? What do you think? Like we said the last few weeks, revelation is based on imagery and allusions back to the Old Testament. Perhaps the foundational symbol of God's covenant is his promise to Noah to never destroy the world again by a flood, to be faithful to his people. The symbol of the covenant promise was what? A rainbow. There in this massive circle around the throne is a rainbow depicting the covenantal faithfulness of God. You may have seen this on Instagram, I'm not sure, but you know, the horrible shooting in Nashville with our sister church that affected our dear friend, the Scruggs family, can't even imagine still the, um, all of the, the, the heartache and the pain that was caused by that. But at the chapel service at the school that was conducted a few days after the memorial service I started to get these Instagram pictures from multiple people exactly at the time when the chapel service was happening at Covenant Presbyterian Church there was the largest most beautiful vivid rainbow you have ever seen I encourage you to Google it I think it was covered by the news testifying to God's covenant promise in the midst of unspeakable tragedy. It's a window into his character, that he is the faithful one. There is this rainbow circling the throne. Look at verse four. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Like I said, all these allusions, these connections to the Old Testament. We find out later in Revelation that the twelve gates depict the twelve tribes of Israel, and the twelve foundations of the city represent the twelve apostles. These twenty-four elders, these twenty-four thrones represent the twelve tribes of the Old Testament, the twelve apostles of the New. It symbolizes. The entire church of the living God are on thrones in white robes that have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. They have their thrones that they're going to cast down before this great one, symbolizing the worship of God's people through the ages. We have a rainbow. We have 24 thrones symbolizing the whole church. Look what emanates from the throne. Verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And what is that reminiscent of? If you remember from the Old Testament, when God reveals himself to Moses and the people on what? On Mount Sinai. He represented himself in this cloud, the Shekinah glory cloud, with lightning and rumblings, and peals of thunder that were intended to symbolize and represent his power, his authority, the reverential awe and fear his people were to experience. There was a certain point on the mountain that you could go up to, but no farther. This is the God of the universe. This is the eternal one. I mean, it causes us um, a mental shutdown if you try to imagine, conceptually, I am on his throne. I am that I am. That represents the aseity of God, the independence of God, the self-sufficiency of God, who God is, and what he's like. And look what's before the throne. We have God as Trinity around the throne. And before the throne, in verse 5, we're burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, which we've already said. That's the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits of God. What is the number seven in Revelation? It, it, it depicts the number of completion or fullness. God in His Spirit, in His fullness is there. You have God the Father on the throne. You have the Holy Spirit before the throne, who's also in the throne room depicting and showing all this, the Son of Man. In all His power and all His glory, God as Trinity is here. And look what is before our Trinitarian God on His throne. Verse 6, and before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal In the ancient Near East We've said this before what did the oceans what did the sea represent? it represented chaos and Death and uncertainty. They didn't have weather radar. They didn't have um, the weather channel They didn't have all of these, you know technologies and so lots of times if you were sailing on a long voyage you had no idea what was coming any of you um, meteorologists out there amateur do you know what's going on in the South Pacific right now have you seen on the news I think it's it's called a super typhoon I think it's one of the the top 10 strongest storms ever on record winds exceeding 200 miles an hour generating waves over 70 feet the amount of power and energy in that super typhoon is beyond our imagination but what's before the throne the sea how is the sea depicted it's like glass it's completely calm clear as crystal so something that to us is uncertain, that symbolizes danger and death, totally under the control of the triune God. That's why the sea is like glass, clear as crystal. Power, authority, it continues. Second half of six. What's this? Now we're getting closer, this closer concentric circle around the throne. We're going to see the highest order of God's angelic creation, also there. It's a combination of cherubim and seraphim, these angels that were charged to protect the Garden of Eden after Adam sinned, these angels that brought the coals in Isaiah 6, kind of a hybrid, is presented here and around the throne. These creatures. Are glorious and awe-inspiring and around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind the first living creature like a lion the second living creature like an ox this is all alluding back to Ezekiel 1 and 10 in his prophetic visions and each of the animals depicts either strength or wisdom or power Verse 7, the first living creature, like a lion. Okay, endurance and strength. The second living creature, like an ox. Power, the third living creature, with the face of a man, implies probably intelligence, understanding. The fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight, perhaps speed. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around. And within. In other words, they have full knowledge of what's going on in God's created order. And what do they do? The most glorious and majestic and regal creatures in all of creation, what do they do? They ascribe to the one on the throne, holy, holy, holy. They never cease, day or night, To say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Of all the attributes of God, only one is communicated in a threefold way. Is God faithful, faithful, faithful? You better believe he is. Is he loving, loving, loving? You bet he is. But at his essence and core, the triune God, he is holy. Holy, 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 righteous, morally perfect, and pure. Look at verse 9. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, they fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever. Forever and ever they cast their crowns before the throne Saying worthy are you our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power and for you Created all things and by your will they existed and were created Some people some people feel like it's it's it it it, you know It sounds odd or is like egotistical for God the triune God, to require worship of His people and His creation. It's the only right and fitting thing to do. You and I, we are never, as Skip Ryan used to say back at Park City's Presbyterian Church, we're never more human, we're never fulfilling our purpose more than we are when we are worshiping the triune God that's what we are created to do we are created to be worshipers why to our college students why would you go to college and forego what the world might indicate um, you need to experience before you settle down why would you pursue the Lord in college why because of this God Because he is that great. He is that glorious. He is that life-changing. That's why we have a ministry to college students in our denomination. We are trying to introduce people to the true and living God. John Piper said, missions exist. Why? You know this. Missions exist because worship doesn't. The whole point is to introduce a dark and fallen world to this glorious, royal, powerful God, the God who spoke the entire universe into existence with a word. Why should we love him? Why should we give our life to him? Why does this put everything into perspective, beloved? It's because of him who sits on the throne. We could spend a million lifetimes serving him, praising him, and it would not be enough. The day that we actually enter into glory, like my, my precious brother-in-law, Brett, his beloved father, Jay, went to be with the Lord Jesus last week. I can't begin to fathom what Jay Owens saw when he was translated from this world to the next where he wasn't he wasn't seeing this by way of analogy he was experiencing this in all its fullness and that's what the Lord has in store for all of us who love him and long to see him whatever issue you're dealing with whatever your view of God it is too small and too flimsy this Gives us the perspective we need. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you and praise you. And we don't have enough life to live to give you all glory, honor, and praise. We look forward to the day where we, as it were, will give our crowns. We'll we'll cast it before your throne. Anything good or or true or, or loving or beneficial or helpful we've ever done is because of your Holy Spirit in us shaping us, growing us, equipping us to serve you. All of our best deeds, Lord, our crowns, we will cast before you and say, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Amen and amen.